0: We're on? All right, we're on. Okay, good. Good morning, Chillicothe Bible Church. How are you guys doing? Are you fired up to be here this morning? I hope you are. Uh, I hope you brought your seatbelt because I'm uh, really pumped up about uh, the text that we have this morning at about the uh, time to, to be with you again. I uh, always enjoy it when I get to be out of the pulpit and sit and just just soak in. Uh, as I did last week uh, with Andy Krause being here from the EFC. Uh, But I also love to be in the pulpit, and so I'm glad to be back here this morning. Uh, Before we get into our text, I just want to um, draw your attention briefly to the back of your bulletin. If you've got back of your bulletin, and flip it over, uh, on the very back page, there is a little bit about our church's finances, and I I don't do this often, but I want to just draw your attention there. Uh, You'll notice that we are in the red. We are in negative numbers uh, for the year at this point. Uh, To put it in perspective, we have been through 25% of the year. We have spent 26% of our budget, and we have taken in 23% of the money we need, okay? Okay. So, the, uh, the spending 26% I'm not that concerned about because uh, we have a lot of front-loaded expenses at the beginning of the year, and so if we're within 1% or so, we're we're doing okay as far as that goes. That'll flatten out as the year goes on. Uh, but what does concern me is having 23% of our income and 25% of the year uh, because, obviously, if that continues, we have some real problems eventually. So... Uh, anyway, just draw your attention to that simply to, 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 to ask you to consider how the Lord would uh, direct you uh, as you listen to His Holy Spirit and to the Word of God uh, about um, how, what you might do to meet that need. You know, 2% is not a big gap if we all pull together, right? Uh, so anyway, just, just draw your attention to that. Uh, some of you may have noticed out here on the north side of the building, those white flags, uh, we are not declaring surrender. We are um, marking out uh, a possible pathway for a driveway that would go through there so that uh, our senior citizens and those who are handicapped and have difficulty navigating that long hallway could be dropped off at the, the north entrance door here, um, Obviously, that's going to cost us some amount of money, and we have uh, some money in our building fund and so forth to accomplish that goal. Uh, Hopefully, it'll be enough to to pay for all of it. Um, But here's the reality. There's a lot of projects like that that we would like to do uh, that we we can't really move forward with until we're meeting our current budget. So just like I say, I'm not going to belabor this, but just a word of encouragement on that because... Um, this is an area where you can participate in ministry and utilize the gifts that God has given you. So, uh, by way of introduction to our text this morning, let me give you some famous last words. See if you can identify these. I regret that I have but one life to lose for my country. That's Nathan Hale, right? Revolutionary War spy they got caught by the British and then hanged, right? If I, had a, if I had it to do over again, I would go out the same way. That's good, right? Great patriot. Uh, how about this one? Let us pass over the river into the shade of the trees. That's Stonewall Jackson, who knew he was dying. He'd been killed by friendly fire And he was talking about going over the River Jordan into the Promised Land. How about this one? This man was asked on his deathbed to renounce Satan. And he said, now is no time to make new enemies. (laughs) That's the French philosopher Voltaire, right? Uh, How about this one? laying there dying. I never should have switched from scotch to martinis. That's Humphrey Bogart, the old the old uh, actor, who, you know, Maltese Falcon, Casablanca, some great classic movies. Um, people's last words, as you read them, a lot of times have a profound way of summing up what their life was really devoted to, what they were really most passionate and excited about. And as you look at these four, you can kind of see that patriots remain patriots all the way to the end, that Christians remain Christians all the way to the end, looking forward to their reward. And cynics and rebels and sinners remain so all the way to the end. This is no time to make new enemies, right? That's Voltaire. He hated Christianity and everything to do with it, and so he was hoping that maybe when he got to hell, he and the devil would get along, and maybe they do. I don't know, uh, but I bring all this up because Second Peter, the whole letter, is Peter's last recorded words to the church of Jesus Christ in his day. And he is concerned that after he is gone, and this is a big reason why he's writing this letter, so that after he is gone, that there will be a standard by which to judge false teaching from true, true gospel from false, uh, false teachers from good teachers, uh, accurate teaching about Jesus accurate teaching about the scriptures from inaccurate. And he is concerned that people understand and grasp and lay hold of, even after he's gone, all these truths. So if you've got your Bible, uh, look at Second Peter chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 12 today. So I will always remind you of these things even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body, because I know that I will soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. Now, when I was with you a couple of weeks back, I emphasized Peter's point in uh, chapter 1, verse 9 and 10, that the absence of spiritual growth in your life can be evidence, can be evidence, of the fact that you may not actually possess spiritual life. Where there is life, there ought to be growth. If there is no growth, could be a chance there is no life. Amen? Because the idea of a Christian, someone who names the name of Christ, someone who has a profession of faith that they make, someone who says, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus, who lives and looks and behaves and thinks and acts and talks just like a non-Christian is totally foreign to the Scriptures. And so when you read, as an example, these studies that, you know, like George Barna puts out, that X and so percentage of Christian teenagers are engaging in inappropriate relationships with their boyfriend, girlfriend, what have you, and yet they are, quote, born again. What I think is this, well, they may think that they are born again, but either they are deeply in sin or they are not in fact born again. When I read that Christians cheat their people their their partners and employees and so forth in business at the same rate as non-Christians or that sometimes you'd be better off working for a non-Christian than a Christian, Because, you know, but these people are, quote, born again. I go, "Uh uh-uh, baby. (laughs) Because to be born from above is to have your life change. And if there has been no change, it may be, it just might be because there has not been any change. That you are not, in fact, a new creature in Christ. Because if you were a new creature in Christ, you would act like it and think like it and talk like it. Okay, that's not to say that Christians don't sin, but when they sin, they repent and they get back right with God. And if they don't repent and they don't care and it doesn't bother them at all that they're in sin, then it could be that they're not, in fact, Christians, right? And I spent a lot of time on that when we talked about verses 9 and 10, and I'm not going to totally track back over that ground, but Peter... The reason I bring it up is because it's linked to what Peter says here. He says, so I will always be ready to remind you of these things. In other words, this. Pastors, a lot of times, can wind up scaring the wrong people. You can wind up really getting to preaching, and the people that are are worried about what you say are not the ones who ought to be. They sit there, the ones who sit there and go, oh, I don't know, I mean, maybe I'm not a Christian because after all, I've got this area and this area and this area of my life that really aren't brought into full submission to Christ yet, okay? Let me tell you this. If this is actually something you're concerned about, it's a good chance you know the Lord, (laughs) okay? (laughs) Um, (laughs) If it's not a good concern or or as happened one time with a guy that I knew, he uh, was having, carrying on an adulterous relationship with a woman he met at work. He had eight children. And we as, a, as, as elders and pastors went to him and we said, dude, <laughs> you are a member of our church. This can't happen. And this is not going to happen with you as a member of our church. You are not going to be a member of the church anymore. We're going to remove you from membership and uh, publicly rebuke you on this. But, so you need to repent. And this is what he said in response to that. Oh, well. Okay. I think God would want me to be happy, and this relationship makes me happy, and therefore, I'm going to do what I want, and I'll repent later, okay? Now, you know what I thought? I thought this. If you, in fact, know the Lord, you have just teed yourself up for some divine discipline, okay? Okay. If you do not know the Lord and the day never comes when the shepherd comes over the hill with his staff to whack you. You might think, oh, thank God I never got punished. But you know what that means? You're not one of his kids. Because Hebrews says that God disciplines every one of his kids. And so just like I don't spank the neighbor's kids, but I do spank mine. (laughs) okay if that never happens to you this is cause for concern right if you just get to party on in your sin because you don't belong to the lord and if that desire to repent never comes you don't belong to him right because god's children repent and come back home and if you don't might be that. You're at the wrong house, all right? And Peter says, look, I don't want you to be overly worried. I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in them. In other words, I'm not worried about y'all. And let me say that to you. I'm not worried about y'all, all right? Based on what I see as your pastor, what I see is people who love Jesus follow Jesus, serve Jesus, want to know Jesus. And who, when they sin, repent. And that's good. But it's still good to remind ourselves of these things, right? That there ought to be growth if there is life. He says, I think it's right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body because I know I'll soon put it aside he wants them to understand that i'm not going to be around forever jesus has told him he's probably in prison at this point as he's writing this letter peter i know you got out of jail once that's not going to happen this time you're going to leave but it's going to be on a wagon with your head missing you know well actually he doesn't get beheaded he gets crucified Instead, upside down. Uh, you're going to leave, but it isn't going to be the way you want to. And he refers to his impending death as putting aside his tent. In my office, I have a tent that is there from when uh, my my family and I decided to go camping at Lake of the Ozarks a couple years back. Now, when we went. A couple of years back, I don't know if you remember, but there was that one week in the summer when that was the week that it was actually summer. The rest of the week, I mean, the rest of the summer, it was kind of just cool and never really got warm and nice. But that one week, it got hot. And at Lake of the Ozarks, it was, uh, to use my dad's expression, forever more hot. It was like 95 degrees in the shade, and there was... They had had problems with the water, and so you couldn't get in to the water because they were concerned about sewage and all that kind of stuff, right? And so it's 95 degrees, we're camped next to a lake, and you can't get wet. <laughs> and it's hot. And any of you who have ever been in a tent when it is 95 degrees, you know how a loaf of bread feels. <laughs> Amen. And so we hacked it for two days. We went caving a couple of days because we got to get somewhere out of this heat. And then we have put the tent aside. And when we went camping last summer, we stayed in air conditioned cabins, right? Because the tent is something that you stay in until you get home, right? A tent is a temporary dwelling, and our bodies are the temporary dwelling that we occupy until we get home, and something better replaces it. Now, I don't know about you, but my tent has a few rips in the fabric. It leaks in places, bulges in others. And I'm looking forward to replacing this heap with something better, something permanent. One day, I will put aside this tent, and I will go to be with Jesus. And then one day, this tent will be replaced with an eternal body, a glorious body like Jesus. But when you die as a believer in Christ, you put aside your tent and you enter into the presence of God. And then one day, when Jesus returns and establishes the new Jerusalem, you get your permanent home. And it's better than this one. Okay? Um, and since he knows in that his death is coming, he says, I'm going to make every effort to remind you of these things so that you'll be able to remember them after I'm gone. Because here's the thing. It's not what you know that is spiritually transformative. It is what you cannot forget. And so he says, I'm going to remind you and remind you and remind you so that after I'm gone, you don't forget. Some of you have been here a while, who've been here as uh, uh, you know, probably predating me, but some of you have been here since I have been here, know that about every time I wrap up a sermon with a presentation of the gospel and an invitation to believe, and in fact, I actually heard from somebody, you know, about the first six months you were here, every sermon had to do with the gospel and believing in Christ, and I said, yeah, your point is... (laughs) And their point was, well, shouldn't there be something else that we learn? Well, yes, there is more. But I don't know how long I've got. I could walk out on 29 and get hit by a cement truck tomorrow. And after I'm gone, one thing I want you all to know is what the gospel is and isn't and the importance of sharing it to a lost world. The country, by the way, with the third largest number of non-Christians in it in the world is the United States of America. 250 million, at least, non-Christians in this country. Okay? Look at the fields. They're white for harvest. All around you. All around me. Um, Peter moves on. He says, We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. Now let me warn you, what's he talking about? In just a few weeks, it's going to be Easter, and around Easter every year, you get the semi-annual Easter and Christmas heresy edition of Time and Newsweek magazine. If you're a subscriber, they come every year, Christmas and Easter. You get uh, Bart Bart Ehrman, or you get John Stolfus, or you get, uh, I mean, John Loftus, or you get the Jesus Seminar, and they will come out, and they will come out with their book or their interview or what have you and they will say well you know all that stuff about jesus is nice but it's good stories it's not actually true it didn't actually happen quite that way and if you look at it historically in the light of our research from two thousand years removed from the actual event then you'll see that if you hold it in our light of our wonderful phd scholar whatever That none of this is actually true and Jesus is just stories. What does Peter say? Peter says we did not follow cleverly invented stories. He says we saw him, we heard the voice. We saw Jesus transformed before our eyes. We recognized with our own eyes, with our own ears, that he is not just Clark Kent. He is Superman. The God-man in the flesh. The Father's own voice told us Who Jesus was, and we were eyewitnesses. In other words, the gospel accounts are eyewitness testimony written by or recorded from the people who actually saw and did the things that are in them. And they were written down, by the way, within the lifetime of the other people around whom they happened. And yet you never read contemporaneous with the apostles any suggestion by anybody that the resurrection didn't really happen, that the miracles that are recorded in the Gospels didn't really occur, that Jesus didn't really walk on water, he didn't really steal the storm, he didn't really cast out demons, he didn't really raise the dead. No, what you read is in people from people who don't believe in Jesus at the time, what you read is this. Arguments about the source of his power, not about whether he had it. And Peter says, we didn't make this stuff up. We were eyewitnesses. And over and over, you know, this is characteristic of the Bible. Different than all other religious books. All other religious books will talk way up here upper story, about religious, spiritual stuff that you have no access to. And the Bible, by contrast, will talk about that stuff, but it will tie it off down here, talking about people, specific people, and places and uh, areas and events that people could witness and, he, and, and in fact, over and over, you're invited to check out. If you don't believe me, talk to so-and-so. They were also there. And they saw it. They heard it. In other words, Christianity is not sort, some sort of blind leap in the dark. You know, you're just going to make your existential jump and go, well, it's true for me, so here it goes. No. Christianity is based on historical, verifiable, check facts. I know that's not a word, but you can look it up, in other words. Paul says, over 500 people at one time saw Jesus raised from the dead. So if you don't believe me that I saw him, ask one of these people. They were there too, and they saw him. In fact, Jesus appeared raised 11 different times. So it wasn't just one fluke event. It wasn't just one hallucination that somebody happened to have. Eleven hallucinations by 500 and some different people is a lot of hallucinating. These are verifiable facts. You can check this out. And where the Bible says this is what happened, you can find the place where it did. You know, it used to be uh, back in the 1800s. It used to be that uh, people would make fun of Christians because the Bible talks about a people group called the Hittites that were totally unknown to history. And so, you know, smart guys and whatever would go, hey, seen any Hittites? You don't hear that anymore. You know why? Because they archaeology progressed and they found this civilization that stretched from Turkey to Iran, the Hittites. One of the first world empires. And it was totally unknown to history apart from the Bible. Where you can check the Bible out, it proves itself true over and over and over and over. We did not follow cleverly invented stories. We were there. We saw this and we told you about what we saw and heard and experienced with our own eyes. And he goes on. And we have the word of the prophets made more certain, and you will do well to pay attention to it, as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. When Peter says, we have the word of the prophets made more certain, what is he talking about? He is talking, I think, about the scriptures and how they are proven. The the scriptures are the word of the prophets. And how are they made more certain? They're made more certain because they have been proven true. How do I know they're true? Well, the whole Bible, if you rightly understand it, points to Jesus. Your whole Old Testament points to the coming of Jesus. Your whole New Testament points back to the Jesus who came. And over and over and over and over, over 300 times in the Old Testament, there are predictions, specific ones, like whose family he would belong to, where he would be born, at what time he would be born, when he would be crucified, that he would be crucified 800 years prior to the invention of crucifixion, it was predicted he would be crucified, and what it would be like. Over 300 specific prophecies about Jesus are contained in the Old Testament then the odds against that happening by random chance by the way are 1 in several trillion it is a number so big you it's more it's bigger than there are molecules in the universe it's that level of mathematically impossible for all this to come true and yet it all came true just as the prophets said that it would. So Isaiah said, born of a virgin, guess what? Virgin born. Micah said, born in Bethlehem, born in Bethlehem. David said, crucified, naked, with his tongue swelled up, and people encircling him mocking, Psalm 22, happened. Isaiah said he'd be pierced. Got pierced. Zechariah said he'd be sold for 30 pieces of silver after he rode in on a donkey. Happened. Over and over and over. And Peter says, in other words, that if you don't believe me, if you don't believe my eyewitness testimony, check out the Scriptures. Because over and over and over, the word of the prophets is proven reliable. Different than uh, Nostradamus or whoever else you want to read, (laughs) okay? All their stuff, you know, it's kind of like, well, if you hold it in a certain light and you interpret it this way, well, then that actually came true. No, the Bible is specific. And the Bible says this as the standard for prophets, if anything, they say. Turns out wrong, they're not speaking from God. How do you know if this is true? Well, check it out. Did it happen? Yeah, it happened like the prophet said it would. Okay, well then that guy's the prophet of God. So the word of the prophets is made more certain by the fulfillment in Jesus of the events prophets predicted. He says, No, you have to understand that no prophecy came about by the prophet's own interpretation. What's he mean? He means the prophets didn't just sit down and go, hmm, I'm gonna make some scripture up today. Okay? Or that Paul, when we talk about the inspiration of the scriptures, we we don't mean inspiration like a songwriter gets inspired, you know, like you, you know, Paul was out on a hilltop, had a good meal, saw a sunset, and wrote Romans. You know, I mean that's not how it went. Oh, you know that was cool. <laughs> I'm gonna write some scripture today. You know, no. Uh, the idea is, is that the, Peter says that men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, and it's a beautiful description, the best one that I know, most succinct that I know in the scriptures about how the scriptures are actually written. In other words, it's not God up there saying, "Write this." Occasionally, that happens. You know, where the prophets say, as an example, thus saith the Lord, and then they write. Or when God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, and he wrote. Okay, Occasionally that happens. But generally speaking, what happens is is that these men write under the control of the Holy Spirit so that their personalities, their cultures, their vocabulary is all preserved, but nonetheless, because it's under the inspiration and control of the Holy Spirit, the words that are written are the words that God wants written. And so there's this wonderful... It's almost like with with Jesus' incarnation, he is the God-man. And so using the language of particular people and particular times... God puts his word on paper where people can read it and study it and see it and trust it as reliable. It's not simply a literary product or this is what I think about God. No, God himself spoke through these men who wrote the scriptures so that we would have precisely what he wanted recorded. It's a divine act. It's a miracle. Um, and we know that it's trustworthy because it has been proven trustworthy. Every place you can check. Now, um got just a few minutes left here before we go to communion. But before we close, let me just consider with you how God might apply His Word in these places to our lives. Here's just a couple things to think about. Number one, what will your last words be? If you had to give your last words to the people that you love, the thing that you want them to remember that was significant for your life and that you want them to remember long after you're gone, what would they be? Would it be something totally foolish like Humphrey Bogart who have never switched from scotch to martinis? I mean, that is just dumb. I go, this is the sum total of your life? Something you pour out of a bottle? I mean, that's not much of a life, is it? Will it be like Voltaire, a rebel against God to the very end? Or will it be Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to love him more, right? Um, Will it be the gospel? Will it be the word of God given to us? Will it be, I can't wait for the day When I enter into the presence of the Savior. For me to live as Christ, to die as gain. That's what Paul said. Peter says, I'm shortly gonna put a Peter says I'm gonna shortly put away this tenth. And when I do, I want you to remember the gospel and that Jesus came and it's true, and you need to hold fast to it. Because it's the only thing that works. It's the only thing worth giving your life for in all the world. What will your last words be to those you love on the day you get called home? Second thing, the Bible is true truth. You know, in our world, there's, there's kind of a relativizing, pluralizing tendency about truth. That whatever is true is true for you. And it doesn't apply to anybody else. But, you know, hey, that's good if it's good for you. Hey, you know, whatever blows your skirt up, parts your hair, you know, whatever it is, it's good. No. The Bible is capital T, truth. And everything else, apart from it, is shifting sand. It's man's opinion about man's stuff that will not last. 200 years from now, what people will think will be different from what people think today. But the Bible will still be true. And the Bible and the truth that is in it will still be worth giving your life for. And the Lord who is presented in its pages will still be saving and changing and redeeming people if the world is still around them. But our opinions about truth and whatever will have all changed by then, I'll assure you. But the Bible is true truth and it's true light in a dark world. Let me ask you this question. Do your actions reflect that? If we really believe that this is God's accurate communication to us. That it is the word of the prophets made more certain that men wrote down as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit of God so that God's word is what's here. I mean, really think about that. That God... The one who flung the universe into existence by speaking, put his thoughts about your life in this book. I mean, that's a thought that just blows your mind if you really contemplate it. That to us is given truth from God. Do we act like that? Or do we have a spot by the door where our Bible sits until next week when we come to church? Okay. Do we not have time to read what God has taken the time to communicate to us? If we really believe that this is truth for life, Is that reflected in the choices that we make about it? Are we hungry? No. God, through His Word. And if we're not, something has gone badly wrong. Amen? Because this is truth. Amidst all the other competing opinions about whatever, this is the only infallible guide because this is the only thing we have that comes from God. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we love you, and we are amazed, just amazed, that not only would the living Word come down to us and save us from our sin, redeem us, and change us after adopting us by your Holy Spirit into your very family such that Jesus Christ is my brother. And these who are here with me are my brothers and sisters. And that we are heirs with Christ for all eternity of the things of your kingdom. Father, that thought is too massive for us. Father, I pray, though, that we would embrace it, that we would be transformed by the truth of your word and that we would be hungry for it. Like newborn babies can't ever get enough, we would be hungry for your word, your written word, which shows us the living word, Jesus. And, Father, I pray as we take communion that the gospel would be seen by all who participate. I pray in Jesus' name.